Hello, everyone, and welcome to the webinar Improving Research Engagement to Support Policy and Institutional Change, jointly organized by the CGIR Research Program on Policies, Institutions and Markets, Collaborating for Resilience, and the CGIR Research Program on Fish Agri-Food Systems. My name is Evgenia Anisimova. I'm Communications Manager with Policies, Institutions and Markets Program, and it is my pleasure to moderate today's webinar. Too often, research aiming to inform public policies or strengthen institutions for effective policy implementation remains disconnected from the real political economy of policy and institutional reform. This webinar will present a new rubric to assess opportunities for research partnerships that navigate this complex terrain of power and leverage sometimes unexpected spaces of engagement. Let me briefly introduce our speakers. Our main presenter is Blake Rutner, founder and executive director of Collaborating for Resilience, an international nonprofit initiative working to strengthen equitable environmental governance and interconnected resource domains and landscapes. Blake is also a member of the scientific and technical advisory panel of the Global Environment Facility, where he provides guidance on the design of GEF strategy in the areas of international waters, environmental security, and resilience. He's the immediate past director general of World Fish. We also have a great panel of discussants who will give their perspectives after Blake completes his presentation. We will hear from Danielle Resnick, senior research fellow and team leader on governance with IFPRI, Philippa Cohen, program leader, resilient small scale fisheries with World Fish, and Jonathan Mokshel, agricultural economist with Alliance of Biodiversity and SEAT. The presentation will last for about 15 minutes, followed by the panel discussion for about 10 minutes. Then we will have a Q&A session to answer the questions from the audience. We invite the webinar participants to send in questions via the chat window on the right side of your screens. We will collate the questions and group any that are similar in content. We will then relay them to our presenters and panelists. When you ask your question, please let us know who and where from you are and what organization you represent, if applicable. Please also let us know to which speaker you'd like to address your question. And finally, we are recording this webinar and we'll make it available on our website shortly after the live session. We hope you will enjoy this webinar. And with that, over to you, Blake. Wonderful. Thank you, Evgenia. Thank you to everyone for joining today. It's great to be here with a, a wonderful panel to discuss these issues which are challenging and timely, I feel. One of the things I'd like to do to set us off is to talk a little bit about the origin of this work because it grows upon a commitment that the Policies, Institutions and Markets Program, PIM, has to strengthening inclusive natural resource governance as one of its priorities. It builds upon the efforts of the FISH research program to more explicitly, more specifically in the domain of small-scale fisheries, develop equitable and sustainable resource governance strategies. And it draws on the experience of CORE Collaborating for Resilience in the area of multi-stakeholder dialogue in particular in this domain and benefits from the support of the Oak Foundation as well. And one way of thinking about what we're aiming to do is bring some structure to what is an inherently messy process of policy and institutional reform. 
specifically in understanding what are the factors that influence policy and institutional reform processes? What are the opportunities for research to constructively engage in these? What roles do we play as researchers and what do we seek to play to be more effective? And in a sense, these are questions that you know, are longstanding. We're not going to provide all of the answers by any means, but they're also ones that have become in some ways even more complex in this era of COVID. And that's because on the one hand, it's simply harder to travel and to meet in person with the sorts of actors that we need to be in touch with to have a good understanding of how to influence these processes. And on the other hand, because rural communities are even more at risk in so many places and facing greater challenges of food security and poverty. So in this context, understanding that these are difficult questions, what we're putting forward is three things. A rubric like Evgenia mentioned to help assess the opportunities for research engagement. We're going to talk about three cases that illustrate this at national and regional levels and then wrap up with four principles to guide effective research partnerships. So one of the foundations for the rubric is this model around the factors that influence policy reform processes. And this comes from the work developing this kaleidoscope model that Daniel Resnick on the panel has led. And it identifies five phases that are not meant to be sequential, but actually can happen in tandem and in different sequence. And the key determinants of what actually supports or blocks policy change at each of these phases. And so building upon this, what we're asking is how can research engagement usefully support or influence each of these phases of change? And some of the answers are pretty straightforward. There can be efforts to build an analysis of underlying problems and convene actors to help set the agenda. There can be efforts to assess specific policy options and their implications, efforts to support exchange of experience and dialogue between those who might oppose and support reform efforts to influence adoption. There can be efforts to leverage the evidence of research to support institutional capacity building of key governmental and non-governmental actors, and of course, outcome evaluation efforts. But each of these speaks to very complex dynamics of power. And one of the things that we thought it was really important to do is to look more closely at understanding the particular opportunities for engagement and influence within this complexity. And so the second element that we draw upon is this power cube. And this comes from Gaventa and colleagues. And it makes the distinctions between local, national, and global levels of power and influence. That's pretty straightforward but also a bit more subtly between different forms of power that have to do with visible forms that include clearly uh, uh, public setting of rules and decision-making, more hidden forms of power that might be setting the agenda that 
frames the debate and invisible forms of power that have to do with shaping meaning and underlying value, including cultural norms. Alongside that are spaces of engagement that have to do with the closed behind door type negotiations that uh, often influence decision making, perhaps invited spaces, spaces that include formal policy dialogue or consultation efforts, and claimed or created spaces that have to do with the efforts of social movements, for example, to bring new issues to the agenda and to demand attention in policy processes. So given this complexity, we ask, what are the potential modes of research engagement that can help navigate this effectively? And this is the result, the rubric that we offer for thinking through the key questions that need to be asked in planning and implementing effective research engagement. What phases of the policy process do we aim to influence? It depends on what's going on externally, but also what are the types of research evidence that we think can be best brought to bear? What forms of power, as just mentioned, visible, hidden, invisible power, and what are the spaces of engagement we hope to enter as researchers and working jointly with our research partners? So to expand this to just take a closer look, this includes what are simply some examples here. So for example, in the agenda setting stage, you can do things that are quite um, out front, like publishing uh, issue briefs that speak to visible decision making. You can work on media outreach to help bring attention to certain policy issues that might be in the more invisible power around shaping the meaning and values around what is even considered important to address. And if we look at the bottom half of this same rubric, you can consider, for example, under implementation efforts to support capacity for implementation, as I mentioned, through solid research evidence, or efforts to validate local perspectives through bringing attention to the local actors and their experiences, either in successful implementation or in the challenges that they face around accessing rights under existing policies. So let's give three quick examples here. The first is a national scale, and that's in Myanmar, the Myanmar Fisheries Partnership, which was created as a multi-stakeholder coordination platform, and it helped to identify common policy challenges. And particularly, this was uh, vital in the early months and the first year after the uh, new regime under Aung San Suu Kyi came into power. And as this partnership moved forward, it helped also to distill lessons about what was working and what wasn't around fisheries reforms and particularly around the Ayurveda Delta. So some of the outcomes of this effort include improved multi-stakeholder coordination, but also evidence-based understanding of what you might consider to be policy experiments at the 
state and regional level, which then offered up evidence to influence the overall uh, regional fisheries law and ultimately provided good input as well to the national policy reform process. So this is an example that uses a variety of forms of research engagement, modes of engagement that are highlighted here, from the explicit use of commissioned briefs to the, uh, at the evaluation stage, clear assessment of the trade-offs that come from experimental efforts, in this case, in community-based fisheries management. The second example is from the Pacific. And what this effort did is it aimed to look at the fit between existing global policies and norms, like the small-scale fisheries guidelines, and the national and regional policy priorities, helping to build dialogue among those different actors engaged in these processes, undertake interviews to understand what were their particular perspectives and their sense of fit as well as misfit between these different layers of policy. And then some of the outcomes had to do with building up a stronger commitment and alignment among actors at the uh, national level, among the different members of the, um, the community of Pacific Island nations, and building up capacity to interpret these global guidelines in ways that could then translate into more specific national policy priorities. And so these efforts focused mainly around this adoption and implementation stages where there were policy frameworks in place, but they could either be simply uh, ignored or they could be interpreted in ways that would be more or less favorable to uh, small-scale fishing communities in particular. And so in addition to things like identifying the barriers to policy implementation related to these gaps, it included efforts to gather together um, testimonials about the impact of policies so far, bring forward local perspectives, and build up dialogue among those who had key influence on these decisions. The third case is, again, at a regional level. And this one was looking at the barriers and opportunities to improving intra-regional trade across Sub-Saharan Africa related to fish. And it included quite a range of different modes of engagement from policy impact assessment efforts to uh, convenings jointly with the African Union and the regional economic communities. It entailed looking at evidence about the real influence of existing trade policies and barriers on local livelihoods and uh, women's roles in particular. And it included outreach to the media. And some of the outcomes here had to do with improved recognition of the importance of this cross-border fish trade for nutrition, for national um, revenue building, and eventually greater harmonization of these standards for uh, cross-border trade policies and an important 
aspect of that being increased women's access in these uh, trade networks and benefits for, uh, for women traders. It also helped to build capacity within these national and regional institutions to set standards that could then be better implemented at a subnational level. And so among the cases, this is the one that sort of uses the broadest range of modes of research engagement. And these are illustrated here. Uh, if you just look along the, uh, the visible column, some type of engagement actually at each phase of the policy process from agenda setting through to design adoption implementation, as well as evaluation of the outcomes of policy reform uh, efforts. And that's because of the diversity of cases. It actually was looking at multiple national cases where there's opportunity to engage at each of these stages of the process. So from these cases and from the broader literature, what we've done is distilled four basic principles to guide efforts at building effective research partnerships that aim to have influence on policy and institutional reform processes. The first of those is to nurture coalitions that build linkages across scales and across sectors at different points in the policy process so that there is an opportunity to create conversations based on research evidence that bridge normal decision-making channels. The second is drawing from this notion of the power cube to be very explicit in engaging alternative forms of power and different spaces of engagement to consider those especially that might be outside of the clearly visible and the open policy decision-making processes. The third principle is to embed research communications in a way that is ongoing in a cycle of uh, both understanding the need for evidence in these decision-making processes and then supporting the dialogue processes that can lead to shifts, not only in recognition of the data, but also in understanding and commitment to change. And then the last principle is to employ evaluation in a cycle of action and learning. And here we're referring specifically to evaluating the outcomes of research engagement, research partnerships, so that we better learn how to improve these and make them better tailored to different sorts of complex policy and institutional reform processes. So if that seems like a lot, we might consider as a beginning point, three simple questions that can guide efforts of research teams in planning among themselves and in drawing in their research partners. The first is, what are we aiming for in terms of the main policy processes that we'd like to see research evidence applied? The second is, what are the key forums in which you're aiming to have this influence at different national, global, regional levels? 
And then the third is, what does this imply for the partnerships that need to be built, that need to be strengthened or adapted to achieve this influence? By no means, again, do we say this provides clear answers, but hopefully what it does is help to sharpen the questions and make them more explicit rather than just implied so that teams can work together with their partners to come up with answers that are well-tailored and producing the results that are so desperately needed to improve policy and institutional reform outcomes. Thanks very much. I'll leave it with that and turn to our panelists for additional reflections. Thanks very much, Blake. Um, I will now ask our panelists, Danielle, Pip, and Jonathan to please unmute themselves and turn on the cameras. Wonderful, we have everybody. So we will start with remarks from Danielle Resnick, International Food Policy Research Institute. Over to you, Danielle. Okay, well, thanks very much, Evgenia, um, and thanks especially to Blake uh, for really important work. Um, and I do want to first just start off by um, congratulating him and his colleagues for this work. Um, we all know that bridging the kind of policy research interface is a longstanding issue for researchers and scientists, especially those of us who work in an applied setting, such as IFRI, World Fish, and other institutes of the CGIAR. Uh, many of us are taught how to do robust empirical work, but then we often have to rely on trial and error to figure out how to have our work have meaning um, and to influence decision makers. So I think it, this, this issue of bridging the research policy interface has been and will continue to be so critical for, for all of us in this setting. I also think the focus on small-scale fisheries um, is a really important area to embed this work because it really is a hard test for policy influence as Blake and his colleagues show. Um, it's an area that traditionally receives less attention than crop uh, agriculture. It's very complex from a governance perspective and policy reforms involve confronting many trade-offs and dealing with many different vested interests. So I think learning what works in this policy arena holds great promise for being applicable in, in a broader range of policy settings that may be uh, less complex or less marginalized. Um, so with that in mind, I want to just give some feedback in three areas that I think all of us uh, struggle with when we're working with the area of policy processes and reform. Um, and I think which work, Blake's work really gives us a chance to reflect on. So uh, the first point is really this issue of acknowledging the role of power and political economy in policy processes. Um, this comes to the fore in many of the frameworks that uh, Blake presents, specifically Gaventa's Power Cube, which really um, adds uh, some greater weight uh, to the kaleidoscope model. But then in the discussion of the case studies, some of these issues seem to disappear. Um, we often don't see um, you know, the, how the relationships between different actors in the cases were uh, equal or unequal, it seems that they very much were on, on the same page. Um, they were all interested in kind of the greater good in, in dealing with uh, small-scale fisheries reform. Um, so I think, you know, showing empirically um, how these issues of invisible and hidden power actually play out um, would very much strengthen 
this work. Uh, it's very important to help us operationalize that second principle of Blake's about engaging with different forms of power, but also if we want to come back to that fourth principle about evaluation. So how can we actually operationalize these different forms of power? How can we see them um, on the ground? I think related to that, um, the second point is, you know, operationalizing some concrete concepts that, that underlie Blake's recommendations um, and that we all recognize are quite key. So for example, um, Blake brings up the issue of uh, making sure that policy actors interpret the credibility, the legitimacy, and the salience of our research findings. Um, but how do, we, how do we measure this idea of credibility uh, for example, and credibility to whom? Is it those actors with the visible power, with the hidden power, with the invisible power? Who do we need to, to get on our side? Presumably everyone, but who, who do we prioritize when, when we have scarce time and resources? And how does that credibility manifest itself? Is it based on our um, length of time working in a country or region, based on our methods? how we frame our findings in a way that's ideologically aligned with those of, of key power holders. So I think pushing more on these concepts um, in Blake's and other work that looks at the policy process um, are, are quite critical because they're very socially contested in and of themselves. And then third and relatedly, um, there's an important issue that, that Blake brings up um, in his work about the need to practice self-critical reflection um, on the researcher's part in, in relation to the institutional and policy context. I agree this is absolutely critical for us to reflect on our own role in that research process. Um, but then there, in the case studies, there's not too much reflection on, uh, for example, World Fish's positionality in these examples or the role of key donors like the European Union and Australia um, that played a key role in pushing for some of these reforms. Um, so would we consider our own role as researchers as having some type of hidden power in of ourselves um, through long-term engagement in some of these countries? Um, we, can, we can also be narrowing the space for other researchers um, who work in these, in these countries um, and kind of projecting our own hidden power on the policy agenda. So in some, I think there can be a little bit more tightening between um, these really interesting frameworks and the, the operationalization um, of these concepts with case studies so that researchers can really understand how to recommend, um, how to implement and, and pursue the recommendations Blake offers. I wanna just conclude with what I thought is a really important takeaway from this work. Um, and that's related to Blake's third principle, um, the importance of knowledge and communication throughout the full research cycle. And I think this is sometimes a bit foreign for researchers. We're sometimes afraid to share our results until they're perfect, or we think that they're perfect. Um, but we need to recognize that talking to policymakers should not just come at the end of the process. Um, and like his Myanmar example shows, um, comes quite to the fore in his paper, um, especially technocrats can see researchers as allies for policy reform, and they may have an incentive to give researchers the full landscape of relationships, including invisible ones. Um, and so this hidden power and visible power is much more difficult to get a handle on if you just leave this to the end of the research. So I very much um, endorse that, that recommendation that as researchers, we can't just wait to the end of our findings and give a seminar to policymakers. We should be co-creating, engaging with them throughout the life cycle of the research process. So Yevgenia, I'll leave it there and turn back to you.
Thank you, Danielle. Thank you so much, especially for the last comment about the importance of communications. And I hope that this webinar is helping in this way too. And now we go to Pip and she will provide her comments from her perspective. Pip, over to you, please. Great, thanks so much. And um, Danielle, I think I will um, echo and maybe say in a different way um, and from a different perspective, some of what you said there. Um, and absolutely, we, um, you know, there, there are people um, listening now that work for the CG, but also who work for um, academia. And we know across all that there's increasing pressure on demonstrating um, our research has some kind of impact. And that may be that it's value-based by the individual researcher. It may be based on individual or institutional, institutional performance metrics and pursuing those. And in some cases, it's based on ego and the want to um, have some kind of change attributed um, towards you. And so I think um, we're seeing more and more people kind of attempting or grasping at or, or trying to make a claim that there has been some kind of policy change or that there will be. And um, it's, it's definitely not something that there's ever a perfect approach to. And so I guess I wanted to share three of the approaches that I see, and I've definitely implemented all of them, so I'm not throwing out um, criticisms um, here, but um, I think these are really useful for us as, as people who are welcoming um, new academia into the space of, you know, um, attempting to create uh, what is favourable change in, from someone's perspective, Danielle. Um, so, and I think the three strategies are, first, um, a strategy that I see quite a lot is, and what Danielle said, is that we'll think about that later strategy. Um, we're very busy doing our research and we'll, we'll try to work out how it might have some policy impact later. Can you just leave us alone for now? Um, and this is, a, this is a great strategy, I've employed it myself. <laughs> Um, but it's, it's obviously not going to, or it has a much lower likelihood of resulting in, in any kind of uptake or being relevant um, to, to um, legitimate stakeholders. And the alternative approach, I think, from the outset is engaging with theory of change kinds of thinking. And I don't mean every individual or every project or every institution needs to um, undergo um, multi-day workshops in theory of change. Um, but I do think that kind of thinking can help set up um, for success. Success being that the research in itself is legitimate and the way that it's designed and people um, are engaged in it is legitimate from the outset. Um, the, the other um, that Danielle also mentioned is that the strategy of we're in it for the long haul. So this is where, um, and, and this is, in many ways, a lot of CG centres are set up well for this, with um, uh, people from country based in country in very long-standing partnerships um, where that theory of change thinking is kind of constantly applied um, and the research is designed, uh, implemented, delivered, discussed, interpreted um, in these very embedded ways. Um, and this can happen at a national level, at a regional level, um, and also at a global level, but it really requires that investment in partnership. And it's not always something that we find easy to structure into a project or a program, because um, it's the, the outcomes of that process and that investment are never quite certain. One of the other um, strategies that I think um, we, or maybe not strategies, but outcomes that we see is this I did it 
um, you know, strategy at the end because, as I said from the start, there is this pressure that that people's research is is considered to have an impact. And this, you know, I did it, um, or there is a causal link between the research I provided and a policy change. Um, I think is a is a really important one to for us to reflect on and be wary of that there is a danger um, in that. And I think um, what Blake's work really does is shows the messiness of policy processes um, and it helps plan for some kind of policy change. Um, but it also shows how many steps are happening in any policy um, development or change process. And that the likelihood is that you as a researcher or you as an institution your piece of research or your body of research was one drop in a in a large ocean of, of you know many things coming together to create a change and i think their rubric helps not only understand what you might plan for and what you may or may not have done but what everybody else has been doing for maybe decades prior um, to you coming along um, so they were kind of my reflections about what the rubric can offer us from a planning perspective, from an honest and critical reflection perspective, as we are required increasingly to report on our research, not just in terms of outputs, but in terms of um, outcomes and that, that ability to kind of honestly and critically reflect. Thanks. Thank you, Pip. And now we can um, come to Jonathan Mokshel. Alliance of Biodiversity of uh, Alliance of Biodiversity and SEAD. Sorry. Great. Um, so I have to say that policy system and policy subsystems are very complex, uh, not very easy to understand. And some of this complexity is because of the differences in ideas, um, different coalitions, the kind of evidence that comes in, and what type of evidence people tend to use, or where people even source their evidence from. And I find the rubric framework very innovative. So congratulations to Blake and colleagues. And I think it's also very unique because it brings different elements of, let's say, the kaleidoscope model, which uh, Daniel on this um, panel and colleagues have developed, and also applied to other policy subsystems, and also the Power Cube, which um, has been there for quite some time now. And this makes the rubric approach very unique, um, also robust and applicable in different policy domains and fields. And touching on Daniel's point again, in terms of its application to different subfields or policy domains, I want to touch on three of them. One is on climate change, two, food environment, and also seed system. Within this policy subsystem, different questions might come up. For example, within climate change, one will ask, why is it so difficult to achieve the two degrees or the 1.5 degree Celsius target of global warming, for example? Or why is this still a mirage? The second is nutrition. Why is this triple burden of malnutrition, in this case, overnutrition, undernutrition, and micronutrient deficiency so difficult to achieve? And system, why is agricultural inputs subsidies so controversial? and access to seeds also very difficult to increase accessibility and affordability. These are questions that come along in different policy subdomains and it's of concern to all the stakeholders within the policy subdomain. 
And there are a number of characteristics that are very important within this policy subdomain. One is that there are a number of stakeholders who are involved and engaged in the policy process, and they all have their interests and ideas and their networks as well. The second is the power relations, which can start from global, national, and even local. And the third is the spaces in which the multi-stakeholders operate. This makes it one complex and not so easy to understand if one is not involved in the policy process, and especially if all the actors want to maximize the process in order to achieve a certain desired outcome. It's not so easy to always navigate. But looking at the four principles that Greg actually presented, I think it offers us different recipes to engage within this messy and complex policy subsystem. And if we want to be successful, it's key to nurture this multi-stakeholder coalitions in such a way that we will be involved and also participate in the processes with our evidence, for example. We also need to engage in these different forms of power, especially the hidden powers and also those that are very invisible. And finally, to be able to engage our research from an early stage so that this will be participatory rather than just packaging and giving the research output to the end users as a large step. And I think this different characteristics of the actors within the policy subsystem makes the rubric in terms of how it has been designed so far, having all the different characteristics very important. And I see it as one that is robust and idle. And since policy in itself cannot be one size fits all, this will provide us with a best fit option for different research domains and engage over. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Jonathan, and thanks to all panelists. And now we will move to the Q&A session. But first, I would like to ask Blake if he wanted to make any back comments to whatever has been just told by the panelists. Would you like to answer? Yes, I'll make a few um, quick reactions. I think the the points that uh, Danielle makes around the underlying tensions behind these, you know, power dynamics, I think are are very valid. And uh, Pip, you might actually want to follow up with some of the examples from the the cases. But you know, certainly, you know, just to take the the Myanmar example, for example, um, we were first off you know engaged in an action research process i i didn't you know go through the list of uh, colleagues that have helped to develop this uh, rubric and and the uh, paper that underlines this but each one was involved at different stages of uh, you know one or more of these cases as active participants and so very much I think it's a valid point that you know the researchers are um, actors with their own choices to make in uh, both accessing and and exercising a certain level of of power in these dynamics and the the sort of particular platform that comes from having uh, international funding or links to regional institutions like the African Union also brings uh, another level of legitimacy that is quite distinct from 
the quality of the evidence itself, and that needs to be taken into account. Um, so uh, in, in the Myanmar example, um, one of the things that struck me was that much of the evidence about local you know, experience in the implementation of these you know, experimental reforms was coming out from civil society groups that understood the local conditions, but didn't have any sort of credibility as researchers in advancing and sharing these results. And so that was one of the important roles that you know, research partners could play, not just WorldFish, but university partners and others as well, is in being more systematic about documenting the evidence about outcomes in terms of equity and sustainability of the, these um, uh, lake systems. And, uh, and in some cases, the riverine uh, community concessions and show that in fact, there were important opportunities for improving both sustainability and uh, equity outcomes. The other thing that I just want to pick up on uh, from the, the earlier comments is the, the question of, um, of building credibility and legitimacy. And one of the things that I think is uh, something that I didn't bring out in the quick presentation is that what we were trying to do is talk to government and civil society actors both involved in each of these cases and ask them, what did you see as the influence? What did you see as the value of research in these processes? And try to reflect that in arriving at judgments of um, uh, what you know, influence took place. And I think that's particularly important to be able to look broadly in identifying you know, different sources of validation to be able to say, you know, is this valuable, is it useful? And in the end, to what extent did it um, support goals around ecosystem resilience, poverty reduction, um, as Jonathan was saying, nutrition and climate resilience, these aspects that are, in a sense, you could say biases, but they are explicit commitments of this set of research institutions that are engaged in these, uh, in these processes. Thanks. Okay, great. Thank you, Blake. Um, we are getting questions uh, from the audience and I want to invite the audience to keep submitting the questions via the chat box, the question box on your right um, hand side. Um, and let me start with this uh, general question to Blake. The case examples described past partnerships. Can you give an example of how this rubric can be used early in planning a new research collaboration? I can give one quick example, and I actually want to turn to Pip to, to learn more about how it's being used um, in new programs underway uh, within the FISH CRP. But um, one of the areas where uh, I've been engaged is in landscape restoration efforts in India. And one of the big obstacles there is that there is not much recognition for the importance of the commons, of pasture lands and forests in. Um, meeting existing policy commitments around climate adaptation and resilience, around job creation and growth, for example. 
And so the, uh, one of the, the partners that we're working with, Foundation for Ecological Security, is trying to identify how do we bring evidence to the policy debate that demonstrates how restoration efforts improve local livelihoods and improve um, the rural economic dynamism as well and respond to the COVID crisis in terms of the re uh, return of youth to the countryside. So this is an example where working with those who are um, engaged in trying to apply the evidence to speak systematically to media professionals, to officials in policy planning agencies at state and national level and so forth, to try to understand from them what is the evidence that you think would be most useful in elevating uh, this side of the agenda and using that to then work backwards and say, okay, how do we um, undertake the kind of analysis that will be seen as robust and legitimate in these policy processes? But I wonder, Pip, whether you might give an example as well in terms of uh, current work and new work underway. Great, um, thanks. And I, I was also going to reflect a little bit on the power um, question from Danielle. Um, I'll try to weave them together seamlessly. So uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, a, a large initiative called the Illuminating Hidden Harvest Initiative, which is led by um, Worldfish FAO and Duke University. And um, I, um, it falls under the program um, that I lead. And the, the purpose of that initiative is to really shine a light on the, the diverse values, food, nutrition, security, livelihoods, incomes um, that small scale fisheries play. So as Danielle um, really nicely introduced in the outset, um, small scale fisheries in an, in an agricultural and food um, discussions um, get relatively little um, attention compared to some of the more kind of techno, um, I guess, technological approaches or seeds, breeds and feeds um, and those investments that have, um, uh, of course, complex, but in some ways more linear pathways to impact. Um, so the initiative broadly responds to um, calls from um, stakeholders within the sector, from small-scale fisheries, uh, fishers, and the civil society groups that um, represent them. But a critical reflection, and I would share this because the group would critically reflect upon this themselves, is that in the efforts to um, get the initiative kick-started, resourced, and in the efforts to make it a global initiative, and at the moment it's, it's um, looking at 50 cases, focused very much on the research effort and maybe lost some of those connections um, to bring some of the stakeholders um, and legitimate voices for that kind of effort along with them. And so the way in which this rubric and that kind of thinking helps is to say, well, how can we not just let it roll, um, but um, and, and it isn't ideal because this stuff needs to be planned from the very outset, um, but to try to use some of those examples kind of midway in that in that um, in the process of research and midway in the in the policy um, steps to really bring um, the researchers together with um, social movements, civil society organisations, and to have a discussion about 
or how should these res how should these results be used? Um, in whose hands should we be putting them? In what form? And so really, the rubric helps, I guess, pick up on some of those missing links. Um, and so I find that, I guess, quite useful. Um, it also helps at that end stage of thinking through, um, I guess, one of the other approaches we see a lot and it is a more straightforward one is, is the approach that we hope policymakers will be reading the paper. I mean, we all know that they won't be reading a paper, but, but there's just too much hope that somehow publishing our research will, will somehow find its way magically to policymakers and influence. And so um, using the rubric to, to try to think about what are some of the investments we can find right now to create those spaces, to interpret the findings. So not to hear about the findings, as you know, Jonathan said, not to be, uh, not to throw the findings for them to be caught, but to actually interpret them and put them in the right hands. Um, so that's one example, um, I guess. Um, the other I wanted to reflect on um, is, is about um, the power and reflecting critically on where the power lies, especially in the kind of agenda setting. And I think um, as, as members of the CG, um, I think it's really um, important to kind of ask how far do you go back in the agenda setting? You can start, I guess, with your, with your research initiative and who sets the agenda for that. But the CG's agenda is being set um, at very high levels. Um, and so I think we as, as or those researchers who are interested in, in analysing power need to go all the way, keep going back. And um, my colleague Tiffany Morrison frames it as meta-governance, what's governing the governors? And I think, um, I think that's a really interesting question for us to continually reflect on, um, who's governing the governors, who's got the power to convene and set the priorities for those convenings. Um, and to set the stage for this convening needs to result in something um, and to almost set those outcomes up and uh, uh, from, yeah, from the very outset. So, I, I mean, I think we're in, we need to continually be reflecting not only on our research initiatives that we're directly engaged in, but also um, what's governing um, above us. Thanks, Pip. And uh, we are seeing all the questions that are being submitted, so the panelists can see them too. And I think Blake wanted to pick up on one of the specifically interesting questions from Stephen Mink. Right, Blake? Yes. Uh, thanks, Evgenia. This is a, a question from uh, an ex-World Bank uh, colleague who asks about, can we consider flipping the utility of this rubric? We've been talking about its value from the perspective of researchers. To what extent can the same questions guide those who are policymakers or change agents in thinking about how to mobilize research to achieve policy change? And so I thought that was an interesting um, way of reframing the possible value here. And I want to go to uh, Jonathan and Danielle and ask if uh, you both have any reflections on ways in which this might be uh, used more directly by or, or with policy officials. Jonathan, any thoughts from your experience? Uh, yes. Um, so I think largely one key thing that we need to take into consideration is look, looking at the tool itself, the uh, 
different issues within a policy subsystem that one needs to consider. And we as researchers are part of this policy subsystem, generating evidence and engaging our evidence within the policy process and setting different forms of agenda at every stage of the policy process. And how to mobilize the resources and even mobilize the ideas and the evidence will mean that we work together and co-create um, to set the research agenda first and also get the backing of all other organizations and parties and stakeholders to be part of the process so that we have a unified voice in order to influence policy outcome. Danielle, any further comments on this? No, I think it's I think it's a great point. Um, and I think it kind of points to me um, that all research is not used for the same purposes. Um, and I kind of think back to this um, framework of Carol, Carol Weiss um, from, from many, many years ago, uh, but she differentiated three types of research. Um, this instrumental research, which is really filling a gap. There's evidence gap. It kind of fits your, your informal uh, cross-border fisheries example in Africa. Um, there was this kind of this research gap and, and you had a lot of researchers able to fill that. Then there's kind of this conceptual research that you want to actually engage in a, in a paradigm shift. Um, of some sort, um, and you're you're kind of trying to address some of that invisible power you're talking about is these underlying ideologies or norms and biases, and you want to kind of shift that mindset. And then lastly, there's strategic research um, where policymakers are asking for the research to reaffirm a policy position they already had, and they want to give it greater credibility um, by saying that you know some some outside credible institutions. Um, also kind of have the same position on this. Um, we, we recently encountered this at IFPRI with a certain government uh, wanting to end a, a subsidy program um, right before an election. Um, and they wanted to show that it had been independently evaluated as you know, financially too expensive um, and that based on research, they were going to end it. Um, and it wasn't just a... a um, a kind of a politically motivated um, decision uh, to save money <laughs> um, in these kind of difficult financial times. So I think just being, um, I, I think the rubric can certainly be flipped and used by policymakers, but we need to think about um, research is heterogeneous, it's not equivalent, it can be used for, for different motiv motivations of policymakers. So, you know, thinking about what are the motivations, the incentives of what we see as policy champions um, and, and then how they are using our, our research um, is quite key. Thanks, Danielle. Uh, I just want to remind that we have about five minutes left of this webinar and we have many questions that started to come by the end of the event. Um, Blake, do you want to address something that you see interesting or do you want me to pick up for you? Yes, let's just pick up one that has come from uh, Courtney Buck, who has background okay. with USAID and other initiatives. And she's asking, given the complexity of navigating policy change, as well as the number and diversity of stakeholders involved, what are some promising practices and our platforms for strengthening and reinforcing this kind of coordination capacity? at local and national levels. And, you know, I, I think um, this, is, this is an important question because it points to the, the challenge 
again, of communication and dialogue, not only in uh, getting information out there, but in trying to find ways that it's, you know, well understood and deliberated. And, you know, I know uh, from my recent work in India as one example, the efforts are to build um, these multi-actor platforms that endure at the district level and support coordination committees at the state level, often to implement existing policies effectively in ways that can, uh, again, apply towards uh, restoration of the, the environmental commons and local livelihoods. But I wonder if any others want to comment on experiences around making this connectivity work effectively. Yeah, maybe if I can jump in a bit. Jonathan. So, yeah. Um, what, what we've seen so far uh, in terms of agricultural policy making policy processes uh, for the regional level, the CADEP has been one of the platforms that um, has been kind of um, promoted within um, countries. So having the CADEP policy processes as a way to influence national level policies within the countries. But what we've seen so far <clears throat> is that there has been a challenge the policies that come from the CADEP policy processes compared to the national policy processes, in most cases, are even a bit different. The national policy processes or the platforms used by the political actors can sometimes be very informal and less complex, sometimes just based on um, a policy idea or a campaign promise from the national uh, leader or policy champion. And this is usually different from the more formalized platforms that you see in the country. So if we want to engage in some of these platforms, we still have to be a bit more cautious, but also understand that there are alternative policy processes as the rubric also brings out, which we need to engage in those alternative powers in order to influence the policies within the countries. Thanks, Jonathan. I know we're in our wrap up moment now to uh, end on time. I just want to close with a, a thought from uh, responding to a question that Rosalind Goodrich has, has put in from IIED. She's asking about involving communications, um, uh, communications professionals in the process. And very much uh, what we mean in terms of the principles is that it's not just researchers thinking about communication, but it is very much um, bringing in those specialists to plan from the start, uh, not only you know what are, what's the evidence, what are the messages that we're aiming for, but also very much how those can be communicated, taking uh, taking into account you know in-person dialogue efforts, social media policy briefs, um, a whole range of ways of catching the attention and uh, really encouraging the thoughtful back and forth of actors at different stages of these processes. Great, thank you, Blake. Thank you, everyone. Thank you so much for all the participants. We had about 80 people joining the webinar. That's wonderful. And we have many questions that probably have not been addressed in the time of this webinar. We will definitely relay them to the panelists and the presenter. And if there is some interest to follow up, we'll kind of put you together in contact. Um, this webinar has been recorded and it will be available um, on our website on the event page that you have probably visited before. 
we will also send you an email with a follow-up link and the webinar will be available in three formats the youtube recording the full uh, recording the slides and a podcast so feel free to share and feel free to subscri subscribe for our alerts to know about the future events thank you very much and have a great day